Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's December 23rd, 1823, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. Twas the night before the night before Christmas and all through the nation, Santa Claus was not yet a broadly popular preoccupation. Oh, he's doing it in rhyme. The stockings were not yet being hung by the chimney with care because... Oh God, how long is this going to go on for? Before the publication of this poem, on this day in 1823, <laughs> there was no conception that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Oh, it ended. Ooh. What a shame. <laughs> well, I'm kind of worried now because I feel like I have to pick this up with the same... Oh no, this I should all be in verse. I can't do it off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah this was a visit from St. Nicholas... Not Twas the Night Before Christmas, as it is often incorrectly referred to. But it wasn't until 14 years later that the poet publicly revealed himself as none other than... I mean, don't guess because you won't know. But at the time, (laughs) it would have been very surprising. Clement Clark Moore, who was a respected philosopher and a lecturer in very heavyweight subjects like Greek and divinity at a New York seminary. I don't go a Christmas without reading his two-volume compendious lexicon of the Hebrew language. I don't know about you. (laughs) And so his desire to remain anonymous is perhaps understandable. He was actually first credited in an anthology in 1837, and he still refused to confirm or deny authorship. It wasn't until 1844 that he finally seemed to have embraced his wholesome notoriety and included it in a book of his otherwise pretty staid poems. Mm. Yeah, uh, and when he did finally acknowledge that he'd written it, he wrote, quote, I wrote this not for publication, but to amuse my children. Uh, he then claimed it as, quote, my literary property, however small the intrinsic value of that property may be. Hmm. I mean, it is literally the most valuable American poem of yeah. all time. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, whatever this trifle is worth. <laughs> and, he then, yeah, and he then went to the trouble of writing out four verses versions of the poem Longhand, which have now become very valuable. One of them sold into private ownership for about $200,000 a few years back, and all the others are in museums. But what's crazy about it is that there's now a live question as to whether he actually was the author. Always with the doubts, always with the conspiracies. Well, in fact, contemporary uh, scholarship has done a number of reassessments, largely based on the the sort of metre and type of prose that he wrote versus the claims of another family of... Major Henry Livingston Jr. He also hadn't claimed it at the time. It was published anonymously. So there was, at least for those first years, some uncertainty about who uh, was responsible for it. Yeah, Livingston in his lifetime never claimed to have written it. But to be fair, he died five years after it first appeared. So before it was publicly claimed by Moore. And it was his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who have carried on this claim. They said that they had a copy of the poem handwritten by him that predated the one by Moore. However, like, you know, then they said a bit, we lost it in a fire, it got burned, etc. Mm. But the strongest evidence in favour of Livingston is the literary analysis, which places it more in line with his writing than Moore's. However, we do have a diary entry from a student of Moore's at the seminary in 1833, so 10 years after the poem appeared, four years before Moore claimed credit for it, where he describes a St Nicholas figure 
and he quote dressed according to the description of Prof Moore in his poem. Mm. So it seems like at the time it was an open secret that he had written it. Also, like a lot of that literary analysis is based on the fact that Livingston Jr. wrote more whimsical poetry than Moore. But as we've said, Moore was a very serious academic, so his other work isn't going to be like that. It's a bit like if you read Clive James's poetry, you wouldn't think, oh, you know, he's the guy that, like, did funny jokes about Japanese game shows on ITV. Like, it's possible to be serious and have a silly side. I hope. What's um, <laughs> <laughs> screwed? Um, and I think if you look at... You know, like the the names of the reindeer, which is what this poem is actually in a strange way perhaps most famous for. It's it's the poem that names Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner and Blitzen. Yes, I do have that written down in front of me. <laughs> um, if you bear in mind his background as a linguist, those are like appropriated Germanic words that seem authentic. Yeah, they were taken from Dutch words. This was all taking place in New York State, much of which at the time was still Dutch speaking. We actually, we're a few years off from having the last American president who didn't have English as his first language, Good which fact. was Martin Van Buren, who was a Dutch native speaker. He'd become president in 1837. And a lot of the imagery in the poem, which would go on to become part of the mainstream conception of Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Saint Nick, does come from these Dutch and German traditions. The way that we imagine him as a sort of jolly fat man robed in fur also his ability to come up and down chimneys at the click of a finger that yeah because in the poem santa is miniature which solves the puzzle of how he's Perfect. getting up and down all those chimneys <laughs> and i've never seen that in any other thing but the poem makes it very clear that he is a very small man that's so Ooh. weird i really hadn't clocked that somehow yeah yeah it says something like you know he's a little old driver and eight tiny reindeer <laughs> it's also at the time notable that there was still some dispute about whether christmas day should be the holiday at all there was a Catholic Protestant divide about that. There were some that celebrated on New Year's Day. And he very deftly, by setting the poem The Night Before Christmas, makes that the night that is a story for your children. That's the night that you gather the family around and tell them about the magic. It's the night before Christmas. And then no one has an issue with that. Yeah, because as you say, at the time, Protestants were a bit suspicious of people who made an excessive fuss about Christmas. It was seen as suspiciously Catholic. New Year was seen as a, a favoured day for family celebrations. The whole concept of Saint Nick giving gifts was seen as controversial because mm. it was this idea that it was akin to saint worship. And so it was Martin Luther had in, first introduced the idea of uh, what they have in Germany. They have the Christkind, so like the baby Jesus brings you your presents. The practice of getting gifts from Saint Nicholas irked Protestants so much that they moved up the day of the celebrations from the 6th of December, which is St. Nicholas's feast day, to where we know it now, the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Well, that's the weird thing, isn't it, about St. Nick and his association with Christmas in the first place. Wasn't that he was a great gift giver, as we understand him in his saintly form, but more that his death occurred around the time of Christmas. And in fact, he became known most popularly as the protector of children and sailors. The Saint sailors Lee. bit has been neglected somewhat. Yeah, that's sort of been completely <laughs> I feel like David somewhat. Williams is going to be on that very soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so Sinterklaas, which is the, the, you know, the Dutch gift giver, and that's where we get the, the name Santa Claus from, he was actually a lot different to the interpretation that we have today. He was dressed in a far more religiously informed version of Santa Garb. You know, he wore red and fur, but it was in a sort of almost like a bishop's outfit and he had a, a more 
well, he still has, he still have Sinterklaas parades in the Netherlands. He's much more somber and venerable. And there's this whole thing of, you know, if you're naughty, you're going to get coal or potato or whatever it is in different countries. Is all rooted in this idea of him as actually being quite judgmental and mm. harsh. Like he's not just there to give you presents. He's there to give you exactly what you deserve. I mean, that's the astonishing thing as well, that so much of the Santa iconography is so recent. And the first actual depiction of Santa was in 1881 when the political cartoonist called Thomas Nast uh, drew on this poem to create his image of Santa really very much as we understand him now. He, he, he brought him back to life size rather than having him be pocket size. Um, but he also brought in, you know, the red trimmed suit with white fur and the North Pole workshop and the elves and his wife, Mrs. Claus. You know, this stuff is, is really recent history. This whole week we've been talking about the popular tropes of Christmas as we see them now. And time and again, we're mm. learning that to really cut through, you, you have to take Jesus out of it. Like, It's a Wonderful Life was supposed to end with the Lord's Prayer, but then it ends with Old Lang Syne. Thomas Edison's Christmas lights got attached to a, essentially a secular Christmas tree, nothing to do with Christ. Um, and then in this poem too, like the, the Christmas poem that takes off, that doesn't mention the son of God. It's mm. about the jolly fat man with the presents. Mm. And that's the exact kind of process that happened to the figure of Santa Claus as well, going from being this quite harsh, religiously informed bishop type figure. Mm. That image was then sort of melded, particularly in the United States, where you had these Dutch and German immigrants mixing with English speaking communities. And in England, you'd long had Father Christmas, who was the jolly emblem of good cheer and feasting. He wasn't really linked to children or gift giving at all. It was more almost like a pre-Christian idea of like, we're all having a big feast in the woods and everyone's having a good time. And those two figures were combined to create the kind of secular, jolly, unthreatening, not frightening Santa Claus yeah. of modern times. I was curious what else the Troy Sentinel had published of note. Because I felt so <laughs> sorry for all these journalists, you know, working hard on the Troy Sentinel for years. <laughs> and then literally you search Troy Sentinel, the only thing that comes up is this poem. If you even go to the building on 225 River Street in New York where the paper was published, there's a plaque which begins... Twas the night before Christmas and oh. here in the newspaper. It's like, come well. on, you know, there's other stuff going on. Like, what about the guy who wrote the gardening we, column? Hey, we went Pulitzers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did feel sorry for them, but then I found a screen grab of the copy from December the 23rd, 1823 in the front page that they had on this day. And the other stories was like, there's a guy selling tin and there's another one selling some copper, and then there's someone listing some hosiery. So Stop by, press. <laughs> by some distance, this was the best thing to happen in the Troy Sentinel. Tomorrow. Arian and Rebecca are looking at me deliciously blankly because they have no idea what's coming. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.